You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Uh, hey, we are continuing our series called Eyewitnesses to Advent. And uh, man, Mills, thank you guys and everyone who's helped light our Advent candle. Adam, you're right. I think, you know, as you see the light growing and growing, uh, I don't know about you, but the anticipation builds for me. So open your Bibles or unlock your Bibles. We'll be in Matthew uh, chapter 2 today. And I don't know about you, but in the Christmas season, you know, one of the biggest parts about Christmas for me is the Christmas music. All the different songs that we sing, and we sing some of them today. In fact, we sang one, Joy to the World. Uh, that's a classic. It's one of the most popular ones. And it's got a very interesting history. So Joy to the World was written by a guy named Isaac Watts. And it's one of about 750 hymns he would end up writing over his lifetime. And so Isaac Watts, he became known as the father of the English hymns. But when you find out about his life, you find out that's really unlikely that he would ever become famous. And so uh, his family, he, he grew up in England, and his family was what they politely called back then nonconformists, okay? And so that meant that they were a, Christ, a Christian family, but they didn't really jive with the rest of the culture. And so they didn't participate with the Church of England. And in fact, his father was put in jail twice for his nonconformist views, and Isaac, he grew up and he became a pastor and then he began writing music, but he wasn't celebrated. He was actually kind of a black sheep, especially when it came to his music. And so, y'all, I know this may be hard to believe, but apparently back then people had really strong opinions about what kind of music should be played in church. Can you believe it? And so back then, most of the music, it was really mostly psalms, maybe a few other scriptures, kind of put to this monotonous, uh, steady, repetitive beat. And Isaac, he, he began to kind of be disillusioned with. In fact, he kind of hated this dull, emotionless worship. And so what he started doing was adding poetic verses, adding these different melodies to his songs. And for that, he was called a heretic. He was publicly opposed by many, many, many people. And on top of that, y'all, apparently he was kind of ugly. I know. It, it's historical fact. Listen to this. So he, he never married. Uh, but he got really close one time. He, there was a young lady named Elizabeth Singer who fell in love with him remotely. And so just by reading his poems and his, his music, and they began writing letters. It's what they did before, like Twitter and all that stuff. Uh, and so they wrote back and forth. And in fact, finally, she proposed to him before even meeting him, and they became engaged. But then the day come that they finally met, and she retracted her offer. It gets worse, y'all. This is what, listen to what she said. She later wrote, Isaac Watts was only five feet tall with a shallow face, hooked nose, prominent cheekbones, small eyes, and death-like color. I admired the jewel, but not the casket that contained it. <laughs> That's throwing some shade, y'all. <laughs> I didn't know they wrote like that back then. Poor Isaac, you know. He's an outsider. He doesn't look right. He doesn't act right. He doesn't think right. And he sure doesn't sing right. And he wrote this line. He wrote this line in Joy to the World that I think only an outsider like Isaac 
could write. And I, I've been, this, this verse has been ringing in my head all week. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Jesus came to bring blessing as far as the curse is found. Is that true? Y'all, that's a long way. Think about it. I mean, of course, the curse he's talking about, it's sin and death. Death, the most universal thing, the thing we all have in common with anyone that's ever lived. And really, to all sin, think about all the sin, all the injustice in the world. Think about the worst person you've ever heard of. Now, don't look around. People know they're thinking about you. Can Jesus really bring blessing there? You know, Christmas time, there's a lot of festivities, and I think most of us agree, most of the world agrees on some level that Jesus, he, he's good. But I think deep down, we're a little suspicious. Surely there's some places Jesus can't go. To the people who have done that, or maybe, just maybe, to my own failure, doubt, and disbelief. There seems to be some dark corners of hopelessness in our world, even in our own hearts sometimes. I think this is why Matthew starts his gospel the way he does. In a completely unexpected way. In a way that makes no sense compared to the rest of his gospel. So Matthew, his gospel is written to Jews and for Jews. And really about Jews. It's to prove that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's the Davidic king. He's the seed of Abraham. Yet, the first people we meet besides Jesus and his family. So we meet them in chapter 1. After them, in chapter 2, the first people we meet, the first central characters, are not Jewish. And in fact, they are as un-Jewish as you can get. They are the non-conformists. It's magi from the east. And for Matthew to, to focus on these guys, he, he has to have a purpose. He's trying to tell us something, and it's this. If Jesus can reach these guys who don't look right or talk right or think right, he can go anywhere. As far as as the curse is found. So let's look at the wise men this morning. We're going to look at who they were, what they saw, what it meant, and what they did. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He, went, he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, let's talk a little bit about who they were. Now, guys, I got to show you something. So, I'm going to show you the gift my kids gave me last Christmas, y'all. And my kids, they think they're funny, okay? So, this is what I got last Christmas. Uh, This is a onesie Grinch costume. Now, I'm going to ask Josh Mills to come model it for us. Josh, if you'll, no. Uh, I'm not going to put this on because it's roughly a million degrees in this thing, and I feel like you'd have a hard time taking me seriously. But we do have a picture, I think, of the Grinch in action. I said, if I'm going to be the Grinch, I'm stealing all the presents. They didn't see that coming. Uh, I have this because i got to play the Grinch a little bit, guys. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But in order to be true to the text, I'm going to have to ruin your manger scenes and many of your favorite Christmas hymns. I'm so sorry. But it's in the Bible. So there's this Christmas hymn we all love. We three kings. Y'all, two out of those three words are wrong. Okay? First of all, we don't know that there were three kings. There were three gifts, but there were most likely more than three of these wise men. So also, they weren't kings. They were, the Greek word is magi, or you'll hear them called wise men. And so, also, guys, your manger scenes are lovely. They're great. Keep them up. Don't move them. They're, they're great. Your manger scene is my favorite manger scene, okay? But the wise men don't belong there. And so, we kind of have this depiction, and it's, all, it's, a, it's the whole gang. The shepherds, the angels, the wise men, they're all together, there together. Actually, what happened is the, these wise men show up afterwards. Maybe Jesus may be as much as two years old by the time these magi show up from the east. Okay, Grinch time over, all right? Let's talk about who they were. So, they're magi. But don't think David Copperfield. They're not showing up doing tricks for Jesus' birthday party, okay? Magi is the Greek word for an astrologer, an interpreter of dreams. So we say, okay, astrologer, that sounds kind of weird too. And so we picture maybe, you know, some palm reader in a shady part of town. That's actually not who these guys were. So they were actually very well studied. They were the Ivy League. They were the scientists in their culture. They had the best wisdom of the world. So in their day, they were more like PhDs than palm readers we might think of. We also know that these wise men, they were high-ranking officials. They had power. They had influence. They were well-respected and prominent. That's how they were able to travel such a long distance. They would have had an entourage. That's how they had such expensive gifts. That's how they were able to get an audience with Herod, you see. We're told they're from the east. We don't know specifically where, probably Babylon or Persia, maybe even as far away as Egypt, maybe even the Arabian Desert. But the one thing we can be certain of is to the Jews, to Matthew's audience here, these are the bad guys. I mean, they might as well, he might as well have had orcs from Mordor show up at the birth of Jesus as far as these Jews were concerned. They're idol worshipers. They're unclean. The Bible clearly condemns their mystical practices. And so for us, modern day, you may think of a Muslim extremist from the Middle East or a Buddhist monk from Tibet, someone totally foreign from the other end of the world. And these guys who, who to a Jew is the farthest someone can be from God, these guys are the only Gentile central characters in the book of Matthew. So why are they there? Why are they there now? As far as the curse is found, every square inch touched by sin will be redeemed by this king. 
That's the message these wise men are carrying with them. Let's talk about what they saw. So they saw the king Herod, and uh, Barry did a great job two weeks ago of looking at Herod and telling us all about him and his history. But just to sum it up, he had been set up as the king of the Jews by the Roman Empire. And he was brilliant, he was successful, and he was a bloody tyrant. He built amazing wonders of the world as a display of his superiority. And then anyone who challenged his superiority, he swiftly killed, even down to his own sons and his own wives. See, to Herod, there was nothing bigger than himself. And so when he heard about some other king coming along, that was a threat. That was competition. You know what struck me this week? Herod was under the same sky as the wise men. He was under that same star. Didn't even notice. Had no clue it was there. Why? Because he wasn't looking for anything bigger than himself. But the Magi saw something in the sky. The Magi saw the star. And we know there's some history behind this. We know at the time Jupiter and Saturn actually came together for an event that in the sky that looked like a very bright star. We even know the dates. It happened on May 29th, October 3rd, and December 4th. Now, what's significant here is that they were looking for the star before they saw it. What do I mean by that? Well, it wasn't, they weren't just sitting at home watching The Bachelor, and all of a sudden, boom, a voice of God said, go look outside, look for the star. No, no, no. They had been searching the skies. They had been studying the stars for years. They had been seeking answers. They had been looking for something bigger than themselves for a long time. You know, psychologists will tell you people, people tend to see whatever it is they're looking for. And so you'll probably go to some holiday parties this year. Think about when you walk in the door to somebody's party, what do you notice? Well, you probably notice the food. Look at that. They got three kinds of cookies. They got my favorite drink. This is great. There's all kinds of things you don't notice. You probably don't notice the color of the light switch or how many pictures are on the wall, that kind of thing. Why? Because you're interested in the food. You want the food. You don't care about their family pictures, so you don't see them. We see whatever we are looking for. Or, you know, the other day I was walking through a building with a guy who runs, uh, he runs uh, telecom cables for a living in all these commercial buildings. And so we'd walk by a closet. And you know what I saw? A closet. I just thought this is a closet. Well, he walked by and he'd be like, well, that's the T84 flux capacitor in there. I don't know. I'm making stuff up. But he had spent his life studying these things. And so he saw things that I didn't see. He knew how to look for them. These guys have been studying stars for a living. Now, why spend your whole life looking up, studying what's up there? They were looking for something bigger than themselves. See, there's a reason we call the sky the heavens, right? Back then, to study the stars was to study the biggest, most distant, most profound thing that humans can see with their eyes. It's even, it's even true today, you know, even with all of our scientific understanding, you know, we think we got it all figured out. Go listen to an interview of any astronaut, anyone that's been in space and looked down on the earth as just this little blue ball. All, they almost all say the same thing. They, they say it makes you feel so small. Even the most atheist among them will say it just makes you feel like there's there's some power, some force out there so much bigger than me. 
And so these Magi, listen, there's probably a whole lot wrong with their theology, but they got one thing right. I'm not the biggest thing in the universe. There's something out there directing these stars, and that's someone, whoever it is, he is doing something new. And so they were willing at great cost, great effort, over a long period of time to seek this thing out, whatever it may be. So what are you looking for? Listen, I can promise you this morning, if you aren't looking for something bigger than yourself, you'll never see it. You'll never find it. So, you know, maybe you're here today, we probably have some today that you'd say, hey, there's some point in my life where I, honestly, I used to believe a lot more than I do today. Well, I would ask you, is it possible that God is still working, but you've stopped looking? You're like Herod. You're under the same star, not even noticing. His blessing is flowing as far as the curse is found, but all of your attention is down, not up. All of your attention is on your own kingdom and nothing bigger. Or you know what? Maybe you're here today and you say, I don't believe. But you've noticed some things here and there lately. Maybe it's not a star, but maybe it's something you can't explain. Or maybe it's just some inner dissatisfaction or, or restlessness in your own heart. Have you been willing to go on the journey like these wise men? To make yourself uncomfortable in order to seek out something bigger than yourself. Well, as we seek something bigger, there's something we have to realize here in the text. There's something we have to realize about the star. See, the star was important. The star was enough to tell them something, but it wasn't enough to tell them everything. Let's talk about what the star meant. So if you've got your Bible in front of you, I want you to look at the text. Look down at the text and answer this. How did the wise men know where to find Jesus? And how did they know who he was? Now, initially, we just, I always just assume, we just think the star. You know, the star is hovered over and just kind of let them along. And verse 9 does say, verse 9 says, the star did eventually so settle over the area. But y'all, if a star is hovering directly over a single house and it's close enough to do that, that house has now been burnt to the ground, okay? The star remains up in the sky. The star can lead them generally, but not specifically, you see. But read the text carefully. They got specific direction. Before verse 9, they got specific direction, not from the star, but from the scriptures. First, they go to Herod. Hey, you're clearly the king. Surely you'll know where this king is born. Herod's like, I don't know. They go to all Jerusalem. All Jerusalem. I don't know. But then they call in the, the chief priests, the scribes, and they look at the scriptures. They look at the book of Micah. It says right here. They say, it's right here. It's in Bethlehem. And the scriptures tell them not just where he is, but who he is. He's a ruler and a shepherd. This is the better David. This is the good shepherd who will reign as king. But let's back up even farther. I mean, somehow, even before they got to Jerusalem, somehow the wise men understood the star meant something about a king. How'd they know that? Most likely, the scriptures. See, we have all these Old Testament books, books like Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all written to Jewish people in exile in the east, where these magi are coming from. And since these magi were some of the most educated men in the world, they very likely would have studied these Old Testament 
scriptures. And in those scriptures, you found prophecies like the one from Balaam. Now, Balaam, y'all, get this, was a magi from the east. He was a, a kind of a, a seer, an interpreter of dreams, a well-known magician. And so a guy named Balak, who's the king of Moab, he, he calls on Balaam to come. He says, hey, I want you to come and I want you to curse Israel for me. Balaam's for hire. He says, no problem. But on the journey, an angel appears to him. And the angel appears, says, don't you dare. You're not going to curse Israel. You're going to bless Israel. And so Balaam issues four oracles. The fourth, the last oracle, it's a messianic prophecy for the future. You can read it in Numbers 24. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So in Numbers, you get a magi from the east prophesying about a star that will signal a king in Israel. We have passages like Isaiah 60 that says, Nations will come to the light of God's people, and they will come bringing riches and gifts for worship. Isn't that amazing? In Matthew, the first people we see are men from other nations who see a light and bring gifts to worship their king. See, men and women, it is only in the light of Scripture that they knew what the light from the star meant. The star could begin their journey, but Scripture completed it. Tim Keller said it this way. He says, the whole purpose of the passage, the point Matthew is trying to make, is that their worldly wisdom told them they needed a king, but it could not tell them how to find the king. It's the same with you. Listen, this Christmas, you will not know who Jesus is apart from the scriptures. Not from songs, not from traditions, not candles, not even profound experiences or your own intellect, not even from a star in the sky. All of those things are what we call general revelation, and God gives them to us. They're a gift from him, and they have a purpose. They let us know that we need a king, but it takes special revelation. That's the Bible. That's the scriptures to tell us how to find this king, to tell us who he is. So if you're going to know God, if your kids are going to know God, it is because we find out who he is in the scriptures. And you may say, okay, which parts of the scriptures? All of it, from beginning to end. Men and women, every single detail in the Bible is given to us to lead us, just as it did the Magi, to the feet of Jesus. So what the star began, the scriptures completed and led them to Jesus. But what did they do when they found him? Let's talk about what they did. There's really three different reactions in this passage. The first is hostility from Herod. And again, we talked about that two weeks ago. The second is indifference from the religious leaders. And y'all, this group terrified me this week as I thought about this. So They were the ones that quoted the scriptures about Jesus. They knew the word, and yet they did absolutely nothing about it. Think about this. The the Magi are willing to travel halfway around the known world, but for these chief priests, these scribes, this is happening in their own backyard, yet they're not even interested in going to see it. You know, it's it's a dangerous thing to know the word and do nothing about it. And here's why it's dangerous. 
This reaction of indifference, it's temporary. You won't stay indifferent forever. See, later, as Jesus grows up and he demands that they acknowledge him, him as Lord and he, as he exposes their need for grace, their indifference is going to turn into the same hostility that Herod had. And they will succeed where Herod failed. These same chief priests who were indifferent to Jesus in Matthew 2, they are the same ones who will be shouting, crucify him, 20 chapters later. And it's the same thing with your indifference and mine. It will eventually grow into hostility. This baby is the king, and there will come a time when he demands to be acknowledged as such. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Jesus will not allow himself to be moderately important in your life. So there's a third response. The response of the Magi, worship. In fact, the Magi only say one thing in the passage. The only thing they say, where's the king? We are here to worship him. That's the only words we get from them. In verse 10, it tells us when they find him, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Now, y'all, that's some next level celebration. Matthew could have just used one word. He could have just said they were happy. They rejoice. No, he uses four words to record their absolute joy. You could just translate it. They were very, 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 very excited about this king. So, y'all, what Matthew shows here, it's more than just a, you know, yay, we found Waldo. Yeah, we can stop walking. My feet are tired. It's even more than some, just some religious pilgrimage. You know, we, we found some new truth to tickle our ears. You know, us wise men can be a little wiser now. This is the fulfillment of the quest of their lives. They had found their king. They had found more than a star. They had found the one who controls the stars. And so the only reason, the only reason these pagan wise men would worship this baby is if they realize this is what we've been looking for for our whole lives. And the gifts, the gifts they brought, they tell us what Jesus meant. These are extravagant, expensive gifts reserved for kings. They bring him gold. All throughout the Bible, gold is associated with Royalty. In fact, you go read 1 Kings 10, and it wants to tell us how wealthy and rich King Solomon was. It's, it mentions gold all the time. Ten times in seven verses, it tells us how much gold Solomon had. And again, that's part of Matthew's purpose here. Is his primary purpose is to show that Jesus is king. We, his gene, genealogy in chapter 1 is solely focused on, on the fact that we should worship Jesus as king. And now in Matthew 2, we see him as a baby receiving the gifts of kings. Frankincense, it emphasizes his deity. So you'll see frankincense all over the Old Testament as well, over a hundred times, and almost always it's referring to worship, to offerings to God. It's their way of saying this, this Jesus, he's not just the king of the Jews, he's the king of the stars, he's the king of the universe, he's the king of me. He is God and deserves to be worshiped as such. And then there's myrrh. Myrrh is a perfume. Sometimes it's combined with wine to make an anesthetic. And it's almost always associated with dead bodies. Myrrh shows up two more times, actually, in the Gospels. We'll see it in Mark 15. 
as Jesus is dying on the cross, Mark says they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. But on the cross, he doesn't take it. He refuses it. So this this king who on the day of his birth, he's presented myrrh in a cradle one day, he is going to reject myrrh on a cross. And then we see it in John 19, when Joseph of Arimathea, when he He's preparing Jesus' body for burial. And he uses myrrh on his body before placing the body of this king in a tomb. So I couldn't help but think, you know, myrrh seems like a bad gift. It seems like giving someone a coffin for Christmas. But the testimony of Scripture from the very beginning is that this Jesus is born in order that he may grow up and die. And you say, what? Why? Why would God send his son? Why would God send a king, crown him king, just to die? To bring his blessing as far as the curse is found, even through death itself. See, it's not just men and women. It's not just that God is going to Persia or to Babylon or or some part of the earth that we can't imagine going. He is going into death itself. Galatians 3.13 says this. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Men and women, this baby, this king, he, he doesn't say, okay, I'll just get near your curse. I'll view your curse from afar. I'll stand next to it. No, he says, I will become your curse for you. And this Jesus, this baby, he's going to grow up and he's going to live a perfect life. The life you and I could never live. And then he's going to die your death for you. Even though he had no sin, he had no penalty to pay, he became your curse for you. And this, his body will be prepared with burial, with myrrh, and he'll be placed in a tomb. Dead, dead, your death. But he doesn't stay in that tomb very long. After three days, he is going to rise again. He is going to rise out of that grave, having achieved victory over the curse. And this is what you can know this morning. You can know if Jesus can go to the grave and then come out the other side, there is no hidden corner in all creation or in my heart where the curse can hide. He is retaking every square inch of ground that sin and death has cursed and tried to claim. No exceptions, no exclusions as far as the curse is found. And when you, like these magi, like these wise men, when you see Jesus for who he is, listen, you're willing to search for him as long as it takes. Travel as far as you need to travel no matter the cost. And when you find him, you rejoice exceedingly with great joy. You bow before him and you gladly give him all you are and all you have and worship for your king. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.